Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Professor Robert Colgate. He was a Roy D. and Margaret B. Wooster professor of the classics at Colgate University. He got his PhD in ancient history from University College London. He studied drama, became a gardener. We will talk a bit more about it later. And taught English and drama to secondary school students and lectured at universities throughout Britain and at the British School of Archaeology in Athens. His research focuses on the social, religious, political, and cultural history of both Greece and Rome. He has 16 written books, which have been translated into many languages. He's recorded five courses for the great courses, including The Other Side of History, Daily Life in the Ancient World, Athenian Democracy, and The Greek World, A Study of History and Culture. And he's giving up academics to do art. That is why he retired. Welcome to the podcast, Robert. What made you switch from the academy to the art academy? Well, really, because all my life I'd wanted to be an artist, but my parents had been adamant that I should follow a narrow path. Not that I'm objecting, really, all these years later, but I pursued academics. I had a lovely career at Colgate. I couldn't have had a better place where I made my life, so to speak. But Always in the background was the hope that one day I would make this big change. And actually, I don't know whether you can see, but in the background, I kept two pictures that I did back in my 20s. 50 years later, I decided I want to do that again. So I decided as well that it was time to retire. I could have gone on. I loved teaching right up until the last course that I taught, which I think was possibly the most entertaining for me and worthwhile. But then I decided, who knows how much time I've got left. I want to devote the remaining years of my life to becoming an artist. Why is it that art, and you know a lot about Greece and the ancient world, why is it sometimes even now when you looked at at everything with the, the lockdowns, it's like, yeah, art is okay if society is going well and affluent, but if it's not, mm. Put it in the background, it's not important anymore. Why is art always so put in the background and not being seen as an essential element of society? If I may make an analogy with Greece, because I think that that's been always in the background as well of, of my hope of becoming something of an artist myself, what you describe was the antithesis to the situation in ancient Greece. Art was not a personal choice. It was a civic undertaking. You think of possibly the greatest achievement of the Greeks in artistic terms, the Parthenon. The Parthenon was a building that was obviously religious. It was committed to um, Athena Parthenos, Athena the Virgin, the patron, so to speak, of Athens. It was not only a building of superb architectural perfection, I would go so far as to say, but artistically in terms of the sculpture as well that adorned it. Now, the Athenian people could have said, oh, I'd like a nice piece of sculpture in my home or a gold plate or something like that. But no, art for them was civic slash religious. 
It didn't exist on any other plane. The only other type of art that we can really talk about in any detail that has survived is Greek pottery. That was used in the home, luxury pottery, but it was also, at least as importantly, given to the dead, placed in tombs, which is why so much of it has survived in excellent condition because it was preserved underground. So for the Greek, it was always something that was not just on the side. It was central to their sense of themselves. The Parthenon would have been a demonstration of Athenian prosperity, of self-worth, of pride, and so forth. For us, art is something very different. The art market, of course, is uh, something that I wouldn't wish to make comment on, but it is so anathema to everything that the Greeks would have valued. They you should make a comment on it, Robert. Like I Sometimes I go to museums <clears throat> and the ancient art or the Renaissance art or you know, Ms. Bosch, I stood an hour in front of the painting in, the, in Portugal, absolutely mind-blowing, and it just inspires me on a spiritual level, on a historical social level. But it's almost like art is a precursor of the state or the spirit of the times. And this postmodernist art, it's all about the reaction, the explanation, but it doesn't provide any imagination or visceral feeling in me, something, something deeper and meaningful for me. I don't completely reject modern art by any means. There are artists whom I just, uh, Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, dead, of course, but sufficiently recent to be in the memory as being artists of our time. But much of art, and including theirs, of course, becomes primarily an investment for people who are expecting to make millions of dollars in investing in their work. And that, to me, is something that obviously was never the case in a previous period of history. Now, you, you talk about Renaissance art. Of course, you needed a patron. And patrons were prepared to pay large sums of money to engage first-class artists, etc. The expenditure was not little, but it was in the service of something greater than money itself. And not to say that it wasn't related to prestige and pride and so forth, but it also served, I believe, another purpose, which was to celebrate, again, actually, civic virtues, religious virtues, spirituality, and so forth. That, I think, has been completely lost. We do not expend virtually any kind of money of any amount on art. Yeah, is it, the, is it the aesthetic element? Is it the spiritual element, the mythological element that enhances the art? Because when you go to cities, what, what are the beautiful buildings? It's the beautiful yes. art when you go to Florence, when you walk through, yes. even in Budapest, where I live right now, you look at, oh my God, the aesthetical element. But I can't count the beautiful things that have been created and really touch my soul. You have the shards in London, just like, okay, just yes. gray and metallic and that's it. But for me, it's soulless. Well, I'd like to, um, if we stick with London for a moment, I, I'd like to use the example of the of Greenwich Naval Hospital designed by Christopher Wren. One of the most extraordinary building complexes in the world. And certainly, I think, probably the most beautiful in terms of size, magnificence, detail, etc., in London. And this was a naval hospital, you know, not, not any grand building where politicians and prelates sat or anything like that. The idea that you would build something like that for such, one might say, a mundane purpose said a great deal, I think, about the spirit of the age. And 
that, of course, is something that we could not possibly justify today. Our city centers are deplorably lacking in aesthetics. And, you know, who spends money on a, on a great public building any longer? I think that money goes elsewhere because we have completely changed from having a sense of what is civic to what is simply private and personal. Uh, there are great public, great spaces, personal spaces, but nothing that is comparable in the civic element that we could take the kind of pride that the Athenians took, or indeed the English took in the 17th century. A, a little short book that uh, talks about this is uh, The Architecture of Happiness by Alain de Bonton. And he also says like architecture is also kind of a reflection of a mood or an emotion we would love to yes. embody, or it can cultivate a certain right. emotion we would love to give to society or a virtue, but that seems to be completely relevant right now. It has to be efficient. I think architecture is very much an expression of the public spiritedness or lack of public spiritedness of an age. I think an age, just as it said, you know, society gets the politics, politicians it deserves. I think we get the architecture we deserve. And if it is soulless, it is because we are soulless. So we agree on that. Why don't we value beauty anymore? Because it's crazy. Because when I travel, I go to like beautiful places, you know, where it touches me or it has like a history. It has a yeah. symbolism. It has a mythology. It has, yeah. you know, something behind it. But now it seems to be lacking. Is that because we've thrown away the symbolic, the mythological, the religious? Or what do you think that the meaning beauty and fulfillment is, is less? Beauty is truth. Truth is beauty. That is all you need to, that is all you need to know, says Keats. I, th I think we're suspicious of beauty. I think with, with some cause, uh, because of course that line is absolutely without merit whatsoever. Beauty and truth are not allied at all. Even is though, it one of the, the three cardinal virtues, beauty, truth, and I forget the third one? Truth is beauty. I don't think there's a third one in, okay. the, in the equation. I think beauty has got us into, well, I think it is in, to, to value beauty is to put some sort of store by a quality, of course, physically speaking, that is not shared by everything. And that takes us into the area of, of, of where we are heading in terms of our appreciation of, as you say, in ways that it would not have been appreciated in other periods. But I think with some justification, I have to say with some justification here, the word for a gentleman Uh, as its easiest translation in Greece, was kalos kagathos, which means a beautiful and good person, kalos kagathos. Well, again, beauty and goodness do not go together any more than beauty and truth go together. And I think, unfortunately, for the aesthetics, because I, I am with you, I, I have to say that beauty to me, it sets something singing in my soul. And I would far preferably look at a painting that celebrates beauty than horror. That said, that said, I appreciate that art is many things. I appreciate and love Goya's Disasters of War, for instance, or his black paintings. And these show a darker side to existence, which I think we must never ignore. But that must be balanced in my way by an appreciation of beauty. And unfortunately, I think beauty has succumbed in recent years and is not valued, is under suspicion, is seen as inappropriate even. 
because it is associated with a kind of perhaps elitist kind of valuing of surface for surface's sake. And that can get us into very great trouble in the political climate, the cultural political climate of today. Well, they sometimes say, and I disagree, partly I agree, but I disagree partly. I think beauty is not subjective. I think sometimes when you look at something, it can really impact you. Okay, it can hit you like differently, but now it's like the market decides if something is valuable. But when you go to these timeless places, those almost godlike beauty that touches you on a level, the beginning of maybe religion is curiosity and wonder, and it just creates curiosity or amazement or wonder. So I feel a lot of people watch it and get touched, you know? I agree with you. Listen, I'm going to com- constantly make references to Greek society. I hope you don't mind. Yeah, I don't mind. No, yeah. You know, lots of things in response to what you say. Now, first of all, when you when you talk of the beauty of art, my instant attachment in my mind is to, let's say, a Greek statue. A Greek statue of a naked male or a almost naked woman. It, it took the Greeks a lot longer to be able to d- depict the, the female body nude. This is perfection. This is an ideal that cannot be exceeded. There are no blemishes. Unlike Roman art, of course, which is very much veristic, which is to say you see the portrait of the person and you see the boils and the wrinkles and the moles and all the rest of it. But the Greeks did not see art in those terms. They saw it in the terms that you're actually describing. And they they cultivated the sense of an ideal, which I think is universal. I could not trust somebody to look at a Greek sculpture and say, hmm, I don't think much of that. It's, it's pretty mediocre. It's either artistically or aesthetically. That said, you said that beauty is absolute. Well, if I may be self-referential for a moment, I wrote a, I wrote a book called The Eye of the Beholder, Disability and Deformity in the Ancient World. Because, of course, that is a subject that also must be brought into the discussion as to whether physical perfection is within the limits of reality, something that we should acknowledge and celebrate. There is a long history, of course, of the disabled and the deformed being uh, slighted, and it goes all the way back to antiquity. And I think that one of the oddities of Greek art, Greek aesthetics, is that had you been walking through the streets of Athens, or Sparta or Corinth or anywhere else at any time of history, this is not what you would have seen. You would have seen people who were severely disabled, some severely deformed, because there were no correctional facilities for people available. And even if you grew up let us say, without any severe handicap of any kind, if I may use that word. Nonetheless, to look at a Greek statue of Apollo, a Greek statue of Aphrodite or something like that, you would have been in awe at the the distance between yourself and that ideal. That has always struck me very powerfully, that this was a society that created beauty as something that was barely attainable by 95 probably more percent of the population, so to speak, because of the harsh conditions of life and because of the very rudimentary medical care that one could have received from birth upwards. Yeah, why did it, 
I mean, I think people can debate me on it. I think the legacy of Greece probably in history is the biggest of all the legacy of people. If you look at so many words and so many things that they invented or created, why specifically Greece? Because when I looked at Greece and I'm reading through it again, so many scribbling factions and <laughs> party struggles like all the time. It's just, they still created a lot of things, but there were so many fights like within the towns, within the cities, within the country that you now call Greece. Yes. But that was, you know, this is one of the oddities, again, so many, and we're touching on lots. Greece as a country barely existed in antiquity. There's a moment in Herodotus, the um, ancient historian, who's talking about uh, what it is to be Greek. And he has one of his speakers say, it is to speak the Greek language, to worship the Greek gods, and to have Greek blood. Well, the last thing doesn't mean anything, really, to have Greek blood. That's that's as vague then as it is today, really. But it is a very generic kind of description. And most Greeks would have seen themselves first and foremost as Athenians or Spartans, Megarians, and so forth. Their sense of who they were was, was very limited. And that is why, as you say, there was so much factiousness. There was obviously faction within the community, but there was always faction outside the community as well. You hated the guys down the road, okay? They were only 20, 50 miles away, but you absolutely detested them. And there is a wonderful Greek word, which is very onomatopoeic, and I'm going to spit it at you. I'm sorry I'm not wearing a mark. Thonos, thonos. Thonos means grudge. Here are the Athenians, and next up, a little bit north of the Boeotians, they have Thonos together. And, you know, they, they, they can't agree about anything. And when it's seasonal to do so, because Greek warfare was, was largely seasonal, you go out and you strut your stuff and you fight a little bit and you gain the field. Next year, you do exactly the same thing, no good whatsoever. Greece was riven with discord, and it was also part of the basic character of these people that made them so competitive and, I think, so creative as well. It's difficult not to think that that edginess with which they lived was not contributory to the achievements of Greek society. Do you think a powerful art arises in struggle, that the struggle and strife sometimes stimulates the beauty within a culture? Well, I'm sure you know that wonderful um, passage in, you know, The Third Man, Orson Welles. Do you know that film? Uh, I've saw, I've seen it like a long time ago. Yeah, I should probably see it again. Yeah. It, it, for me, it's my favorite film. It has a, The script is by Graham Greene, English novelist, lovely, lovely, great novelist, I think. But I believe this speech Orson Welles put into the film and he, he, he's up on the, the wheel, the great Ferris wheel. And he's talking to his friend and he says, you get the Borgias, you get murder, you get this, you get that. You get all the achievements of Renaissance art. Whereas in Switzerland, you have 500 years of absolute (laughs) amity and peacefulness. And what do you get? The cuckoo clock, he says. So I I do think it's very salutary and rather depressing to think that often it is in circumstances where human beings are really in a state of distress, of discomfort, of of certain challenges that they produce some of the greatest works of art. I mean, Athenian society was not 
constantly at war, but every year people would be fighting. I mean, it was just part and parcel of the condition of being an Athenian or any other kind of Greek. And the challenges that that puts, the awareness of life being short, I think, and yet, although life is short, you create for eternity. I think it's a sort of paradox that uh, comes with the territory, so to speak, of, of life in antiquity that, that nobody could expect to live particularly beyond their 40s. You had a very short creative span, let us say, from your 20s. If you were lucky to live to your mid-40s, that was a good run for your money. And I think that puts enormous pressures on you to achieve as well, apart from all the other conditions of life that are suggesting to you that, you know, this is your moment. You better make the best of it that you can. Yeah. And we also talked a bit about before that people think like, oh, conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theorists. When I read about, you know, the follow-up reign of the Assyrians and the beginning of the Persians and, you know, the two kings in Sparta and then in Athens and the Alcohol. Alchemists or whatever, I don't know, the clans, you know, that, 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 that yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's full of conspiracy. It's basically full of conspiracy or they banished the person and he came back and they bribed this and they bribed people in, in Delphi to make a certain, prof- I mean, it's, it's full of it. It's full of it. What you're saying, basically, I mean, saying Delphi was bribed. I'm sure Delphi was bribed to side with the um, Persians because it, it clearly thought that throwing its lot in with Persia was the right thing to do. And it was probably bribed as well, one suspects. And yes, bribery, of course, was um, very much a part of political life in the ancient world. And so were other forms of criminality, one might say. This was not a society that you would have held up as an example of justice and fairness and all the rest of it. The values were there, but nonetheless, they were corrupted by people. The Alcmeonids may well have, well, there was a suggestion, firstly, that the Alcmeonids were cursed because they performed an act of a sacrilege on the Acropolis, killing a suppliant. And forever afterwards, they were cursed. They never lost that sense. But nonetheless, Pericles was an Alcmeonid as well. So he, he managed to nonetheless come to par despite all that. But, you know, people didn't forget that kind of thing, and they would have held it against you uh, for all time. He was always remembered as an Alcmeonid, and the Alcmeonids were always remembered as... It's like that same, it escapes me, like a mythology that, he, that they always eat their children because they committed, like, blasphemy. So they have to, like, so many times that they eat their own child or whatever. Well, and uh, you're painting with a slightly broad brush. <laughs> I mean, that goes back to Greek mythology. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not in real life. I'm talking about mythology here, yeah. right? But in the mix, yeah. it keeps on returning. I don't know. Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. you're much better at this than uh, than than me. But then, as a curse, you know that that keeps on repeating in the well, next generations. Right. Well, you know, th- that's another thing. I mean, if we just sort of spend a moment talking about mythology, mythology deals in the worst of human behavior in a way. One of the reasons that I have always found it worthwhile, really, spending so many years and all my working career, so to speak, teaching about the Greeks is because of the hard look they took at human behavior. They were not deceived into thinking that human beings are very nice, nor did they believe that human beings would ever become any better. I don't think. 
it is that hard look that they took. And in their mythology, where the worst, where, you know, you get Medea who um, murders her children because she's been abandoned by her husband. You get Agamemnon who sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia so that the Greek fleet can gain a favorable wind to sail to Troy. There are many instances like this in Greek mythology where people commit horrors. Why? Because it happens. And the Greeks never shied away from looking at what is the worst that humans can do. That, that, you know, they didn't, as some cultures do, seek to paper over what is the worst that lies at the heart of who we are. And I've, I've always found that oddly reassuring rather than the reverse. We have to look into ourselves. We have to know who we are. We have to. That's the only defense we have against the worst behavior by looking into ourselves and knowing what we are capable of. And the Greeks did that regularly. We know about mythology largely through Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy looks into the abyss, looks into the darkness of the human soul, so to speak. And this is the killer, finds no consolation. You know, this is not, not a people who thought, oh, well, it'll all be better in the end somehow. No, no, this is what we are. This is what happens. This is what people do in war. This is how they behave. It's not given them a very good reputation in some quarters, but it is unswervingly truthful. And if I can say one thing that is the reason to study Greece, ancient Greece, it is because of that unflinching honesty. I'm also a character of fairy tales and fables all around the world, but I often go back to the Greek people. Why were they able to create so much deep, visceral, conscious, unconscious place that still are so powerful? Like I know no people who have such deep, meaningful stories that have such a deep layer in what they're trying to convey. Within right. that simplistic people, still when you go deep to the transcendental meaning of these stories, it's very powerful. You know, we don't know the answer to that. And I, I often think about it. I mean, if you, if you take myth, myth obviously begins orally and at a date that we cannot possibly begin to pinpoint. When did Greek culture begin to emerge? Let us say sometime around the middle of the second millennium BCE. Probably early on, these stories were being passed on by mouth from fathers to sons to daughters, mothers, to etc. And then the earliest way that we know of them is, is really through Greek tragedy. But by then, they've probably gone through many, many mutations and their very flexibility, the fact that they were not dogmatically asserted to be this is the exact story here, made them so powerful because they were not ever fixed in form. And they could be retold. You can tell the story of Electra according to Sophocles. Sophocles wrote an Electra. Euripides wrote an Electra, okay? Euripides was obviously aware of Sophocles' Electra, but he does his own thing with it. And that made it a constantly reinventing kind of medium by which to pass on, well, some kind of sense of morality, some kind of sense of what to avoid as much as how to live by, I think. And But, you know, why it was that it came about, why were the Greeks so good at doing this? I have no idea. For me, one of the greatest authors is Herodotus. Herodotus is a fantastic storyteller. 
he just time and time again, I think, wow, that is a wonderful story. And I, we haven't got time to go into some of my favorites, but they are extraordinarily insightful and extraordinarily, you just relish them because they seem to tell us so much about the way the world works. Yeah, and even in Rome, they, they imitated the Greeks and they tried to create their own gods, etc. It has some interesting stories, but I mean, the Iliad is okay, but I think, you know, the, 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 the first two, the Odyssey and the Iliad are like, for me at least, they vastly surpassed the, the Iliad by Virgil. Do you want me to comment on that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Listen, I... Sorry, I, Italian people, I checked them all, but... I absolutely, if I, if, if I were on my desert island, I would take the Iliad with me. I, I think, I think it would be a hard run between Homer and Shakespeare, but I think I'd probably take the Iliad. And the Iliad, you know, is, well, I mean, that's such an interesting story. It emerges probably in the Dark Ages, as we call it, the period from about 1100 to about 800, you know, it tells the memory of a great Greek venture leading to the fall of Troy. It is, you know, people dismiss it who don't know anything about it as being just about war, just about bloodshed, lots of people die, blah, blah, blah. It is to talk about humanity. It is, for me, the supreme humanistic work, certainly of ancient culture, but I think it comes close to outbidding really any modern work as well. And when people read it, sorry, like Achilles is a very dislikable character. He's basically just sulking there and, and being annoying. And I think, what is the king called? The king called who is Agamemnon. like... Uh, but no, the other one from from the, the Trojans. Priam, Priam. Yeah, he's actually a likable character. He actually tries to be like, you know... Well, this is... Philip, this is... You've absolutely nailed it. This is what's so surprising about this poem, that the Trojans are presented far more sympathetically than the Greeks. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, yeah. and this is where, you know, it's been said about the Greeks. They were supremely critical of others. The only people they were more supremely critical of was themselves. They, you know, th this book is saying these, these people are not nice. Odysseus isn't nice. Menelaus isn't nice. Agamemnon isn't nice. Nestor's a bit of a fool, the old guy. Yeah. And um, Achilles is frankly intolerable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, exactly. That leads yeah. to the death yeah. of thousands, we're told, of his fellows simply because he's saying, you're not going to treat me like that. I'm not going to stand for that. Well, that's what leads to all the suffering and misery. And the final scene, of course, where the two men come together, Priam comes to beg for Hector. I mean, that absolutely, if that doesn't bring tears to your eyes, you know, well, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think I would put the Iliad. And the Odyssey, of course, is about coming of age. It's so appropriate for any young person to understand that Telemachus is you at the point where your life is changing. And of course, Odysseus as well, his life is changing. He's coming back after all those years at war, absent. He's had his adventures, but he's also at a turning point. And the beautiful portrait of Nausicaa, the, 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 the princess who Odysseus appears naked before, holding just an olive branch in front of him, or a branch of some kind. As for the Aeneid, I would, yes, it is not as great, quite, but book four, the Dido story for me is, 
just matchless as well. It's very rare in ancient literature that that romantic love is presented so sensitively as it is in that book, with, of course, fatal consequences. And um, I, I, I think that that book stands alone, as it were, as a testimony to Virgil's extraordinary insight into human nature and into the nature of a woman as well, I have to say. And, and Aeneas does not come well out of it by any means. Uh, the god told me I had to go. Oh, really? What kind of an excuse is that, <laughs> you know? Oh, no, I'm not going to Italy willingly. I go against my will. Oh, is that so? Okay. It, it just doesn't ring true, of course, in her eyes, however much it is necessitated by the plot, so to speak. It, it, it's, it's a book that I would honestly think we, we have to give special attention to as well. Yeah, they're called a classic for a reason. I think, you know, know thyself. Yes. It starts with self-reflection. Like yes, everything that's going on, awareness starts with reflection, questioning things. And yeah, that makes it fickle, uncertain. But that's where knowledge or insights come from, from dancing with that unknown. And yes. I think that's what the Greeks did and the questioning things and then investigating things, seeing existence as fickle, seeing the gods as fickle, realizing that there were unconscious drives that then Freud communicated that were underneath, but they didn't know. But they, they realized that that was a part of existence. Also in the tragedies, which also is not a happy endings, let's say, but important life lessons. Right. Well, you said something very important there. You know, the gods are fickle. I, I, I think that one of the things that made the Greeks so strong and so capable of fulfilling the dictum, know thyself, which was Nothiseoton, inscribed on the walls at Delphi. Delphi, Delphi, where you went to find answers. Well, you're not going to find the answer if you don't know yourself. And, you know, there's this wonderful story about a, a king who, Croesus of Lydia, and he, he wants to know whether he can attack the Persian Empire. And so he, he sends to Delphi. And Delphi responds, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a great empire. Yes. So he thinks, that's a great line. <laughs> I say, oh, good, I've got it, I've got it. So he does, and he destroys, of course, his own empire, because he doesn't know himself is the point there. And to continue with that line that you said, the, Greek, the gods are fickle. Yes, they are fickle. They're fickle, they're selfish, they're cunning, they're deceptive, they're completely disinterested in human life, with, with one or two exceptions. Athena cares for, for Odysseus, but that's in a book, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, they don't give a tinker's cuss for human beings. That means you're on your own. You're absolutely on your own. There's no one you can pray to except, you know, for something really very minor. You can't pray, oh, God, you know, may I enter the kingdom of heaven. That was not available to the Greeks. You can pray that you'll get a nice Ferrari given you by your uncle if he's persuaded by the gods to leave you in his will, so to speak. But only things in this life were available through prayer. Win a victory, perhaps. Good health, perhaps. Fertile harvest, perhaps. But only in this life. So you're on your own. I want to check this. Did they think we have favorable circumstances, but they still had to like make it happen? Or did they yeah. sometimes think like, oh, yeah, now we know we're going to win? Because I think it's more like, oh, the, the, the circumstances are favorable, which doesn't necessarily mean that you will still get it. 
Again, you're right, Philippe. The meetings of the assembly are recorded with the words agathe tuke, with good fortune. Uh, tuke, which means fortune, became a personification, a, a divine personification in the fourth century. I mean, elsewhere, of course, before that, you have references to fortune. But no, it was something that the Greeks, you know, if you live in a, in a polytheistic world, you're always looking to find, well, who is it that is doing this? And that, of course, that could drive you insane, trying to find out which god you need to, I mean, if you're going to make a sea voyage, Poseidon, obviously, but things aren't always that straightforward. And so there are goddesses, Tuke was a goddess who would, you know, just intervene at times when you might not necessarily be expecting it. And as time went by, as I say, the fourth century, fifth century is really the, the great century of, you know, when the Parthenon was built and so forth. But the following century, a lot of things happened. People, people's minds changed quite a bit. Greek society was never static. And I think they came to recognize that the unpredictability of life that could not be nailed down in any way was often the cause. And you couldn't really necessarily ascribe it to a god directly other than this goddess whom they called Tuke. So I think they, they, they fully understood that it wasn't just the big Olympian deities that necessarily were directing human life. What I'm fascinated about is about if you talk about social engineering of society, the social engineering of Sparta, suddenly like that they changed society completely. And then the social engineering experiments with like uh, democracy that lasted for a while and then they got conquered again. Why were they able to do it? Because it's a massive overhaul of how to do things, especially maybe in Athens, a bit more gradual, but in, in, in Sparta, like that new model of society, it's a complete overhaul of how they usually did it. But now, yeah, let's talk about Sparta. Claude, Claude Levi-Strauss, I think it was, wrote a book that talked about hot societies and cold societies. Athens was a hot society. It was innovative. It was freedom-loving. It was creative. It was open to outside. It was also capable of swings and changes and, and so forth, and development and evolution, etc. Sparta was the very opposite. It was a cold society. It was static. It was conservative. It was traditional. Sparta did not welcome outsiders at all. Athens had a huge body of metoikoi, metics, that is to say, resident aliens, who were permanently resident in Athens from other places largely Greek, but nonetheless, foreign cities, etc., but Phoenicians as well, Egyptians, etc., etc. And these were welcomed into the city. Sparta, the very opposite. Now, you, you talked about social engineering. Sparta created a society that was extraordinarily enclosed and rigid and in some sense harmonious, because the word for a Spartan citizen was a homoios, which means an equal. Well, all citizens in a certain sense in every community are equal, but making that word the watchword, so to speak, of the Spartan citizen was, was very important because it meant that there were no great social distinctions of any kind. I think they were much larger, actually, in Africa. Even women had a lot of rights, actually. Women, yes. Now, we're told that women uh, were entitled to own property 
And there is a book of sayings of famous Spartan women, which Plutarch, a Greek historian, much, much later preserved, you know, the famous saying, on your shield or with it, meaning don't throw away your shield, because that would be a sign of cowardice. That's one way. Make sure you come back with your shield or on it, meaning dead, because you would be laid on your shield. Kind of like what Stalin did with his order that he said, like, everybody who comes back from the war, they will be kept in like prisons because he got his de decree where he said, like, we have no war prisoners. Either you die or you don't come back. That's one of the we, we're going to go back to Greece. But that's one of the horrendous things that a lot of people don't realize is that Stalin actually had an order that when Russians came back. He didn't accept war prisoners. He sent them back to the gulags because there was an order like, no, you, you, you can't surrender. Yes. You know, my father was a um, prisoner in the Second World War uh, of the Japanese. And he said that they were, that, that the Japanese guards would taunt them because they had surrendered. They, they, they thought that that was a sign of disgrace and ignominy. So there, this is a long tradition. And of course, that famous line, which has become apocryphal, Molon Labe, which, according to Herodotus, the uh, Spartans who fought at Thermopylae said to the Persians, come and take me, my weapons or whatever, because I'm going to die. That's the only way you'll, you'll get them. The, the extraordinary bravery, one has to admit, of people in the ancient world is beyond what we can imagine. Every citizen, whether in Sparta or Athens or elsewhere, was required to serve in the army year after year. Not necessarily every year, but certainly until, so to speak, retirement age, which would have been, you know, well into your 40s. And the and phalanx was only as strong as the weakest member that was standing by their absolutely side. Absolutely right? true. Absolutely true. Because your shield on your left was sufficiently large to protect the man beside you. It, it, would, it would overlap, in other words. Sorry, left. Yes, that's right. Because uh, I'm left-handed, I get confused. But there we are. I would have been at severe <laughs> risk fighting in the hoplite army because everybody had to be right-handed. And it was very lockstep, as you'd say. And every phalanx fought with its members rigidly in line. And that is an expression of citizenship as well. It's, 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 you know, we're no longer in the world of heroes, as in the Iliad, for instance, where Achilles arrives on the battlefield in his chariot, and then he dismounts and he fights a warrior and he kills a warrior and he gets back on his chariot and he goes elsewhere. The chariot's rather like a taxi. They never fight with chariots, so to speak. But it's, it's individuals against individuals. And they and always try to steal the equipment of the other person because it seems to be super important for them. It, to is, be able, it yeah. is super important because, you know, this is also not, not only about military, you know, strategic advantage. That, that sort of comes second in a way. It's also about, it's about glory. It's about time, as the Greeks call it. And, you know, if you win the arm, as of course, when Hector kills Patroclus and he takes his armor, And he's actually wearing it when Achilles kills him, which makes Achilles all the more enraged. Well, that is, a, that is a deep disgrace because it means that your men have not been able to defend that body. And, and that, is, that is, it seems almost as important because so much of the war is rich, rich, what we would call, broadly speaking, ritualistic. It's not about 
achieving tactical advantage at all. Well, this is what you also studied life uh, in the ancient times. And could you paint a picture how mostly war was? Because now it's like massive amount of people dying, thousands fighting a kill the dead. Wasn't it more like, you know, pan panic that, you know, like you, you pressured and then the beginning of the struggle, you know, as soon as a flank fell down, that's the most important part. But it was not mostly the case that like 50% of the army got like decimated. It was just like a small percentage and they then won the battle or am I getting yeah. it wrong? Or how did war in ancient times mostly happen and how many victims fell in a big, big battle? Well, firstly, let me give a little bit of background here. Firstly, it was, you know, it was a privilege to serve in the army. It was a mark of your citizenship that you served. Slaves did not serve except in unusual circumstances when there was a particular crisis. They were not worthy, that is the point, or they were not trustworthy, one might say, in the eyes of the community. But to be a citizen meant that you served. It was your duty, but it was your privilege, perhaps, and there were no exceptions, so far as we know, except if you were in some way disabled. It was not a professional army, except Sparta. That is to say, people would not be permanently serving. They presumably did do exercises during the year to keep in trim and that kind of thing. But other than that, they would go about their ordinary daily business. There was the army and there was the navy, of course, especially important for Athens, serving in the navy, hugely demanding job, pulling a oar to speed up the trireme that you were serving in. Ritualistic, I mentioned, there was no officer class. There was a general, but there was really no officer class, certainly no, again, permanent members of that sort, as there were in the Roman army. It was seasonal, as I mentioned, and it was extremely brutal. Now, you mentioned what would be the um, fatality rate. We do have what are called casualty lists, which is to say names of people who in their tribes died in any one year. And it's roughly estimated that it would be below... 10% of mm. those served. And it wouldn't be the whole of the community that would go out of, of, of men who were capable. So largely, warfare, when it was conducted in Greek against Greek, it would be more about gaining the advantage. Mm -hmm. Hoplite warfare, you jab, you jab, you jab, and then you cause the opponents to leave the field. When it came to fighting against the Persians, it's a different matter altogether, of course, because then you're fighting for everything that you want. And then as well in the Peloponnesian War, it became kind of total warfare as well, a war unlike any other war that the Greeks had fought against Greeks, leading, of course, to the demise of Athens. Yeah, How many and years that, was that after they liberated themselves from the Persians? The Persians are seen off in 479 BCE. The Peloponnesian War breaks out in 431, and it ends in 404, with a brief interval in the middle from 421 to 4165. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. It's pretty generation. Fast. Yeah, it's just one generation. It's crazy that you united, you know, as a was not nation as as factions, let's say, and then again the faction struggle happened so quickly. Well, it, well, yeah, I mean, the Peloponnesian War, of course, it's called the Peloponnesian War, but it's really the Athenopeloponnesian War. It's Athens and her allies. Sparta and her allies, and virtually no corner of the Greek world was untouched by it. 
it was the closest thing that the Greeks had to sort of a kind of Armageddon in a way, a life and death struggle. Mostly their, their battles were of no significance and led to very little territorial exchange or anything like that. Prisoners would be captured and exchanged and so forth, except for siege warfare. Siege warfare was extremely brutal. And as we know, again, going back to the Trojan War, which I think is accurate in this respect, as we see it from the Aeneid, when Troy is destroyed, then the Trojans themselves slaughter men, women, children, etc. But largely speaking, ordinary warfare between Greeks did not lead to those horrific consequences, except when we come to the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War is, you know... A, the Melian Dialogue talks about this little tiny community, this little island. The Melians say, we don't want to join Athens, which Athens is pressurizing them to do. We think the Persians, we think the Spartans are going to protect us and the Athenians, and, and the gods are going to protect us. And the Athenians say, it's a wonderful little dialogue in Thucydides. The Athenians say, don't, what are you, stupid? Again, this is realpolitik, you know, which Thucydides deals in. The Spartans won't care about you. You're not significantly important. As for the gods, poof, you must be joking. How many inhabitants are we talking about then? How many inhabitants did like Athens have in those days? Well, if we're talking about citizens, we're probably talking about between, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to estimate, maybe 30,000, maybe 40,000. Then, of course, you double that for women, 70,000 children. You're getting up to 100,000. And then slaves. We haven't talked about slaves. But, you know, there may well have been, say, 30, 40, 50,000 slaves. Almost every family would have owned at least one slave. And some people had many more. That's clear. Now we delve into an interesting topic where in these politically correct days, often they revisit in history and say, like, this person didn't do an ethical right thing. This is racist. They owned slaves. Voltaire was a racist. Most people were racist back then. Doesn't mean that Voltaire hasn't written some, written some great things. What is your view of this revising history of everyone, Columbus, on current day ethics and current day morals? Well, I think it, it, it has some value if it gets us to rethink the focus that we give to ancient history or any period of history. I mean, it is absolutely true that there have been groups that have been marginalized and excluded from the historical record. And I, I've actually been in my work, I, I mentioned about, you know, I wrote a book about the deformed. And that was actually the first deformed and disabled. That was the first book that had looked at them as a whole constituency, so to speak, because they do not appear prominently in, obviously, literature or art, but they are there and they deserve attention. Another group are refugees that I, I looked at. And, and, and that was that's, that's a huge subject, of course. Greek society was very much a society of refugees. And uh, I mean, that's putting it strongly, but I mean, all the, you know, there's a huge movement of colonization where people left their communities to go elsewhere. Now that, I mean, I think if we focus on the groups that have not received sufficient attention, and of course, one would include women, and of course, one would include slaves, that does the discipline a huge service. And I'm all for that. But we've gone rather farther, of course, and there is a sense that if I may stick with the ancient world, which I know the only thing I sort of really know a great deal about, it's, I think it's 
very regrettable, and I'm choosing my words carefully, that the whole discipline should be put into question because the conditions of life were such in the ancient world that people were treated in ways that today we would never allow. Yeah, you, you, some people go so far you can't talk about Socrates or have a statue of him because he owned slaves. I and mean, that's... everything that he that he talked about and <laughs> that he created, it should be forbidden because he had this element that right now we frown at and think like it's not allowed. But to to judge something historically while not taking the historical context into account or other merits that a person has done, I think it's very uh, close-minded well, and you cited. It's closed-minded and it's hugely arrogant and it's ignorant. And I have no time for it whatsoever. I did a course for the great course. It's called The Other Side of History. And, and one of the insights that I put forward there was that nobody can think outside of the box. Aristotle was the greatest mind of his generation, but he could not think of a world without slavery. Mm -hmm. Here's a question. Could Christ think of a world without slavery? He says nothing against the institution. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you've got to get rid of slaves. Mm -hmm. That does not happen. Why? Because he lived in a society where such a thing was unthinkable. The best you could do was to treat your slaves as human beings, knowing full well, however, that you're not going to change places with them and you're not going to start an anti-slave movement. And I can also say, like, you're going to say, like, oh, that's bad that they have slaves. But when I look at right now the situation, we're being treated a bit like slaves, that our freedom is limited. We can't say some things. We have to do things. And then we have, like, freedom. So it's not so extreme as being slaves. But I also talked about this just before the podcast that I see a kind of return to like neo-feudalism that you have to mm -hmm. earn your grade, you have to earn your credit score, you have to ask if you can go to another territory with the permission of your landlord, you know, like, right. you know, the government or bigger governments. And I see a kind of return to neo-feudalism because you're from the UK, a country where I'm reading On Liberty by John Stuart Mill now because I'm a huge freedom of speech advocate. And I see, well, some of these rights, they're being turned back to Medi medieval times. Right. Well, look, freedom of speech is always under threat, one might say. And back in the 80s, I think it was, uh, I.F. Stone wrote a book, Who Killed Socrates? And he challenged Athenian democracy because he said, well, you know, Socrates was basically executed because he said things that people didn't like. He preferred it to youth. And he pervert, yeah. Now, I always, when I was a teacher, I said, I am in this class to pervert you. That is to say, <laughs> to change your mindset. That's what Socrates was really accused of. He was accused of changing the mindset of people, which is the goal of the educator, of course, not to teach them, not to pervert them, but actually to get rid of the ignorance that is there. But freedom of speech. We, we talk about liberty in Athens, but of course, it wasn't the case that you were absolutely free as it, any more than it is today, and perhaps less so, because as we were saying before the podcast began, the means of controlling us are growing daily. In the brief time that we've been sitting here, I wouldn't be surprised if somehow 
our lives are being more and more constrained by forces that we probably nobody can control any longer. And, and that is enormously fearful for all of us, I think, because privacy, privacy is such a, for me, ideal that I can be myself by myself. No longer will that be the case, I think. Yeah, or the right to make up your own mind, mindset. <clears throat> How is your mind set up? Let me give you input so you see different perspectives. You don't have to think like me, but then you can create your own opinion. You can think for yourself. And that's where it made a bad list when I reach John Stuart Mill. Like, yeah, you can have individual freedom as long as you don't harm other people or create violence, but then it's about the definition of like, what is violence? Because people can say it's direct violence, but I think removing people that voice critical debate, own opinion, own thinking, that is also a kind of violence. That is also, because that's something liberating about being able to think, get the feedback, and everybody does stupid things sometimes when they're young and regret things, but that's how we learn. We get mm -hmm. the echo back and then we wonder, I shouldn't have said that. And that's how you also become a more integrate human being with your own fickleness, with the fickleness of being human. But when you have a narrow bandwidth of what you can think, what you can say, what you can feel, like it takes away the essence of negotiating your philosophy, your reality, your perspective with the world in a meaningful way, in a self-reflective way. Well, I celebrate everything that you've just said. I think, you know, protection of free speech is... Um, essential to democracy. We haven't talked about democracy. We could have talked about that a great deal, of course. But without freedom of speech, there can be no democracy. The demos, the people, have to be able to get up and say what they like about any subject under the sun, whether it be religious, whether it be to do with the country itself that they represent on any topic whatsoever. But let's be honest right now. We don't have a democracy right now. We have a demo of crazy because basically in most countries, there's like a panel of virologists and they make the decisions. It's like a handful of people that nobody has voted for these measures. Nobody has voted that they want things, you know, and a lot of these interests, they are coordinated on a global level with big institutions, big tech. They're deciding things like the sovereignty and the ownership of the individual, let alone the nation. I'm not also nationally, but I see the value of the nations making up their own way of thinking that also creates the beauty and diversity in the whole world. I don't see any democracy right now. They say like, yeah, you can vote every four years, but your vote based on a perception. And that perception is being fed by certain cultural institutions, media, et cetera, polls. And then they say like, oh, we let the citizens decide. Yeah, but you've been showing them a certain perspective. So they vote or do something. I come from Belgium. We, we, we didn't have a government for a year and a half during the COVID crisis. We were worldwide number one. It's debatable, but that's a whole other topic. And now we have a government that actually most people didn't elect for. And uh, our minister of health wasn't even on the election list. <laughs> You've just described, the, again, the exact antithesis to what Athenian democracy was. It could only work for two reasons. Number one, because of slavery, which liberated to use that wonderful word, which liberated the citizen to be able to participate in government. And you also had an amazing thing with, I think, I don't know how it's called in English, with the shards, you can vote people away. Yes. Well, listen, th th this is it. This is it was it. not just voting people in office, it's also <laughs> voting people out. Well, my other point was that 
that it was participatory and not representative. But that said, there was no president, there was no prime minister, there was no body who was appointed as a leader for a period of time, four years in the case of America, can be longer in the case of Britain, but nonetheless, you can at least get rid of him or her. Nothing like that. There would be people who were prominent, but they would not hold political office by virtue of being prominent or be prominent by virtue of political office. So anybody who wished, that was the Greek phrase, hot boulomenos, anybody who wished could speak in the assembly on any issue that was under debate. There were no elections. There were only votes that were taken every day. And on that day, you might vote to make war with Sparta or not. And if you did, you were culpable and you would be affected directly by it because you would then become um, a citizen in the army that fought against Sparta, say. So everything was direct. Everything was personal. There were no vested interests. There were no lobbies. There was no way that you could bribe anybody to represent you because everybody was equal. And also the oddity was that whoever turned up to the assembly would be the people who on that day would decide whatever issue was under debate. Mm. And I, I think that, you know, of course, no women. We know that, but you know, when was it that women got the vote in this country? Yeah, but on the other hand, it's what also what I like, by the way, about your book, The Daily Life. You also did a great courses thing about it. You can check it as an audiobook. History is written by the victors. Oh, everybody was lying on a couch like Louis the the fifteenth and then being fed grapes by his slaves. Yeah, that was the elite of the elite of the elite. The average existence of a citizen, a man or a woman, was pretty horrendous for a launch broad part of history. So yeah, we can talk about slaves, etc. But in general, life wasn't so fantastic for history because it's been written by the important people, the victors, etc. But that's not a representative image of life in ancient times or medieval times. Life was extremely tough for the great majority of people. And I'm going to say this boldly, being a slave wasn't necessarily the worst condition to be in. There's a passage in the Odyssey, book 11, when Odysseus descends to Hades and he talks to Achilles and he tries to sort of make Achilles feel, well, look, your people talk about you and I'm sure you've got good status down here. And he says, I'd rather work for somebody as a day laborer. He doesn't critically say, I'd rather be a slave again mm -hmm. in life. And I'm not, this is in no way defending slavery. Don't get me wrong. Abhorrent in all periods of history. But in fact, life was so terrible for so many people that at least having some security, if you were a domestic slave, would not necessarily materialistically be the worst thing. And in fact, in, in, in Athens, there were slaves who lived independently because the Greeks generally would not work for other people. They thought that was utterly demeaning so that, you know, they would not work for somebody as a um, captain of a ship. Yeah, that they even referred to, they refused the water they, and they uh, earth, earth from the Persians. They're like, even if it's symbolic, guys, I'm not going to do this ritual to be a, a slave or an indentured servant of another kingdom. <laughs> they well, were very proudful, very proudful they were, for such They a, were very proud. They had a very different idea about work as well from the one that we do. I mean, they, 
you know, they, they disdained work, actually. And, of course, to be a man of leisure meant that you could concentrate on refining your sensibilities and being fully engaged as a citizen. Because being a citizen in Athens and elsewhere was pretty much a full-time job. Let yeah, me ask but, you a bold question. Do you think democracy in these times actually works? Because I feel that most people, <clears throat> they vote based on perception. And perception is so much manipulated by certain sources that if you can manipulate that perception or culturally, you can make people vote a certain way and you can put it under the guise of democracy. But actually, most people, they just follow a prescribed narrative and they're not informed or aware enough to see different perspectives, especially with the censorship going on right now. I think it's become harder and harder and it probably will become harder to determine truth in terms of what we, the people, are told. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with someone before the war against Saddam Hussein and the whole issue about weapons of mass destruction. I had serious doubts about the truth yeah. of that claim. I have to say, I'm not saying I'm some <laughs> great wizard or anything yeah. like that. It just seemed that we didn't have enough evidence. Mm -hmm. And so it proved. And to me, that was the beginning of the awful slide that we've experienced in democracies around the world. Once our leaders, appointed leaders, deceive us in a democracy, we might as well be living under an autocracy. It's only the superficial veneer of democracy that we are actually allowed. And you talked about the fact that, you know, once every four years we get to elect our leaders and so forth. And They come from a political class of enormous wealth. That would not have been true in other societies. But today, to be a politician in America, of course, you have to be a billionaire. There are so many ways in which democracy does not function in ways that give the people any power whatsoever. It's easy to complain, of course, but I am fearful, I have to say, about where we are heading if we cannot have access to the truth. And um, less and less, I fear will we be given the truth, whichever side of the political divide we happen to be on? Yeah. It is Monday. too easy to deceive us these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also with AI and deep fakes that they can mimic somebody saying something with their yeah. face or with their voice, you can't see the truth anymore. And it's not even democracy. They want to move towards a technocracy where they take away all the human elements, all the fickleness, right? What, what, what the Greeks right. actually dealt with. And that way the algorithm will decide like it's removed and you want to appear like it's just the algorithm and you have no human elements anymore or you can't place your intention or the context. No, it's all run by technology because that's more efficient. But that takes away all the fickleness, the beautifulness, the humanity of life. I think that is exactly right. what makes it meaningful. I actually sent you a, I don't know whether you saw it, a photograph of my head on the body of Russell Crowe as a gladiator. Now, you wouldn't know that that was not my body. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. very convincing, I'm sure. But that's, yes, I mean, we're moving to a place where it becomes... But isn't it integrating this fickleness, everything that's been going on the last year and a half? You had a great video. What is the success indicator? Nobody falling sick? Nobody can die anymore? We can't accept this being a part of life anymore? Like, what's the metric mm -hmm. here? What's the success indicator here? Isn't dealing with the fickleness, unpredictability of life a mm -hmm. way to have a more predictable, satisfying existence instead of trying to micromanage everything? Isn't, well, isn't, isn't this a Faustian 
deal or kind of like, you know, always being curious and Pandora opening the box, you know, and then the curiosity becomes the downfall. Isn't that also something about being human, having emotions uh, and these things and not being able to control everything that makes an experience worthwhile? Well, look, you've, you've, you've really opened the Pandora box there. There are so many ways in which humanity is under threat at this moment, I think. And, you know, artificial intelligence is another, another, another fear on the horizon, I think. I think we're going to find it harder and harder to know really who we are in the future because of technological advances that are going to both be capable of controlling our thinking. I mean, that's, that's been coming on for a long, long time. You know, advertising has been a very sophisticated weapon to control us. But as you know, if I, you know, sort of Google something, it's likely that that Google is going to produce some sort of little quirk in the system that will say, oh, you're interested in that, then I'm going to send you this. Yeah, or you look at it on Google, you look at it Wikipedia, but if they set the rules, they kind of determine the search framework, right? And, so. and absolutely, yes, absolutely. And, and, and they know very well what my politics Don't you are. think this is worrisome? I come from a, from a teacher family, but I've always been like curious and I love rebels with a cause. That's why I relate with uh, the change makers, the freak, the outcast, the artists. Isn't it saddening as a teacher? Don't you want to spark the curiosity, the asking questions? Don't you want to get questions instead of giving answers? Don't you want to freedom to dance with perspectives? And that also as a teacher, it's become increasingly difficult to make students think to be able to give a course in your own way. I mean, I noticed it with my dad, like in the past when the grades were not good, it was the students who were doing a bad job. And now if the grades are not good, it's the teachers who are not doing a good job. So it's, that also changed a lot, uh, the, the role of a teacher and how education is, is being done. I think I retired at the right moment on one level and at the wrong moment on another, because what you say is very much a concern in the classroom, I think, for a long time. I mean, I, I taught at Colgate. It's an elite institution. Students pay a lot of money to go there. They expect to set themselves off for careers that will now allow them to shine and so forth. So they're, they're, they're invested in grades and so forth. I think Colgate does a good job in standing by values, etc. But it is a it's a difficult battle at times to fight. And identity politics is making it a lot harder as well. Yeah. I, I mentioned about the four of the Aeneid, and I was teaching, I'll never forget this. This was about four years ago. I was teaching the, that book, and, I, and at the end of it, Dido commits suicide when Aeneas leaves her. And I asked one of the students, well, what do, what do you think about this book? And her comment was, this, is a, this book is a it's bad um, reflection on women. Why? Because Dido commits suicide. Yes, she shouldn't do that. And my response was, but that's not the point. The point is, is it true? No, that's not the point from the point of view of that student. It was all politics. Now, politics has very much become a feature of the curriculum. And um, classics itself is under threat as a discipline. Uh, because of its elitism, because it celebrates, so people claim, whiteness, et cetera, et cetera, and that it is a foe of multiculturalism, none of which is true. I don't believe that for one moment. I think that if we lose it, and other disciplines as well that are under threat, like art 
an art history, art appreciation. We Isn't that art. what a lot of people say? You can see the fall of civilization when there's such a decadence on a moral level and moral disarray and chaos. That that's- There is moral disarray. There's absolute moral disarray. You know, the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with a terrible intensity. Yeats, the second coming, I hope I've quoted him correctly, roughly correctly at any rate. I mean, that was a very prophetic poem. And I think that it is the case that there is a passionate intensity about where the curriculum should go. One understands the sense of frustration that people feel with where society is going, but I don't believe that ripping apart a subject such as classics is going to do any good whatsoever because it is to misunderstand, to go back to our previous point, to misunderstand that we cannot step outside our period. And if we want to say, oh, I've got all the answers, the curriculum must go in this direction. We're just being arrogant and narrow-minded, as you said. So I go go back to the fickleness, like, you know, I want to, I want to make sure it's an infantile way of being. I want reality to be completely constructed that I'm not offended, that it's not fickle, that it goes as I want, you know, and I want to mold the world to my perspectives. While another thing is like, yeah, there might be some things that I don't like, but I can take a stance. I can give my opinion about it and I can choose my positions towards those circumstances, which I think is a much more powerful position to have. And also we said, like looking back at history of things that take a change and then we're not okay in the context, but you could also do the other thing, which I think we're not doing. And I think Hegel sometimes touched on it. Like, how about rescuing great ideas, morals from the past? Well, when that I'm at the forefront again, things that worked, you know, that we're missing right now. Right. Two things from what you said. And the first one was to do about, I am fearful when education is used in the service of social justice, I have to say. I'm not saying that that is not worthy. I thoroughly applaud the desire to make a better society, but I believe that we will only do that if we teach fundamentally people to be critical, Mm -hmm. be critical even of the best ideals and to understand that they may also have to be trimmed in some way to be effective. And certainly to, to, to rubbish the past is no way forward whatsoever. I firmly believe that if you have an agenda that is doctrinaire in any way, it is likely to do more harm than good, even though it is well-intentioned. I believe that classics has actually upheld a standard of excellence in terms of, yes, you have to be bloody good at doing it, which is to say you have to pay attention to details and so forth. When you studied history, there's no moment in time that you think like this was the absolute moral high ground. This word now I just have the ownership of the ideals and how society should be and everybody should conform to this. Any idea can become perverted. It, it's always in flux. It's always evolving. Yes. But the the pride, the arrogance of people to think that they now know the ultimate morals, the ultimate way of dividing society, the ultimate way how people should behave and communicate and don't think that it won't become perverted. That just blows my mind. I'm debating a principle of progress and evolution, but not a rigid structure. Like now we're at the pinnacle of morals and everything now has to be like this and it can't be perverted anymore. I couldn't agree more. 
you know, in 50 years' time, we could look back at this period and say, how could you people not have realized this, that, or the other? You know, okay, it's wonderful that we are more aware of the injustices, of the, the terrible social injustices. And yes, let us by all means celebrate those who have been ignored and put in second place or subsidiary condition or whatever in our classes and so forth. But the idea that we have got all the answers worked out and that we know exactly how to program the youth is utterly, utterly misguided in my view. We do not know the answers. We are at a moment in history where we think in a certain way. We will think differently in 50, 100 years' time. I am absolutely certain of that. And, you know, there's something that I always think is, is extraordinarily eternal. You talk about, you know, finding in the past things that are always true. Thucydides said that he wrote his book to be a possession for always because. These things, meaning the things that he describes when he writes about the Peloponnesian War, these things or things like them are going to happen, are bound to happen so long as human nature stays the same. And one thing we must never forget, I think, is that human nature will always stay the same. We will always be selfish. We will always be greedy. We will always be mendacious. We will not be able to create a human being that is perfect unless we destroy humanity itself. And that we must not do. We have to accept our limitations. And that, to me, is the great danger of the move towards making education primarily in the service of advancing social ends, because it's not going to happen. And we risk, at great cost, I think, keeping our brains alert to doubting everything. I think without doubt, we won't go forward positively. That was why my first blog that I created, super old school, it was called Fire of Prometheus. And why was it called Fire of Prometheus? Because fire, it's a, it's a tool. It's not the end result. It can illuminate, it can burn, it can torch, you know, it can guide you. And then, and that's what the fire of the gods, you know, but you still have to work with the, with the fire. You, I want to give you the tool to illuminate, to investigate, to throw light yes. on the darkness, to not burn yourself out, you know, to not torch things. It's a powerful tool, but right. I want you to learn how to dance with that tool. Right. That's what right. I think is powerful. Yes. And sometimes just as Prometheus is going to sacrifice yourself for higher ideals, etc. But a lot of learning is from suffering or dealing with negative consequences and then getting an experience and getting smarter. That, that's what makes us human. And that's why many of Plato's dialogues end without resolution. The point of the exercise is the exercise. And that, I think, is the key to education as well. You do not come up with an answer necessarily, but you do come up with a method of looking for an answer. And these you know, very special dialogues called aporetic, use the technical term, like the Euthyphro. Euthyphro is being examined. What is piety? So we come up with four or five different definitions. And at the end, Socrates has destroyed all of them. And he says, okay, let's start again, Euthyphro. And Euthyphro said, no, I've had enough. But that is sufficient. It's enough that we examine life. We, we don't know the answers. We can't come up with the answers. We're not gods. We can only use our human intelligence to inquire 
in as sophisticated and objective way as we can, without relying on authority or any dogma or anything of that kind, any question that comes our way. Dogma is the enemy in all its forms, I think, of genuine inquiry. And if there is to be any hope of improvement in the human race, it can only come by doubt, uncertainty, and fumbling our way forward. It can't come by somebody implanting some sort of answer to how we should behave in the future and conduct our lives. I had a guest uh, on my podcast, uh, Professor Matthias Desmet, about authoritarianism. And since you're like an expert on history, mostly ancient history, we know about authoritarianism in China, Pol Pot, Cambodia, Russia. Has there ever been a time that authoritarianism, control, and tyranny has been prevented when it was taking place? How Has there ever been a time when authoritarian has... Authoritarianism, the rising of authoritarianism has been prevented because we've seen it in Russia, Pol Pot, and it happened. It seemed unstoppable. Huh. Is that a time in history that we can use as inspiration that it was stopped? Passing to Roman history, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was one of the greatest men who ever lived. But nonetheless, he was moving towards authoritarianism, I think. And I think that was the reason why he was assassinated. He despised the Senate. He sought no counsel. He was dictator in perpetuo at the end of his life, which is pretty close to being an autocrat. And he suffered the consequences. And then his, I'll call him his successor, although it was several years later, Augustus. Octavian comes to power in 27 BC, so to speak, and he establishes the Principate. But he is very cautious in doing so. But in effect, it's very close to being autocracy. I think that the Roman, the Roman imperial system was pretty good at both pretending that it was non-authoritarian and actually being very close to an autocracy. In the end, one has to say that there are circumstances where, you know, I hate saying this, where one person rule is the most effective. You, yeah. you know, you, you couldn't in, 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 the, in the Roman Empire be operating a democracy. There was no possibility, although they did continue to hold assemblies and elections and all that kind of thing. But in effect, everybody knew there was a Senate as well. But it was up, absolutely up to the emperor, really, to call all the shots. And that's a sad comment, really, about political structures, that sometimes democracy doesn't work as effectively as autocracy. I think it was an issue during the Second World War as well. You know, Churchill was much more vulnerable to public opinion, of course, than uh, Hitler was. Yeah, when you studied history, you see that history is a lot more complex. It's often taboo when I put it like historically about what happened after uh, the Treaty of Versailles and East Prussia was cut off from Germany and uh, Hitler wanted to have a great German empire. But I'm not exactly certain if he wanted to have a war against the United Kingdom because he saw it as a separate empire and he didn't, there are sources at least that he didn't want to have a direct war, but there was a lot of influence to get the United Kingdom in the war. There was a lot of influence to get the, the United States in the war. So again, here I'm not taking stances, but history is often action, reaction, and previous circumstances can lead to the next one. So I always like to look at the context so I can see different perspectives. I, I think that's right. I think there was probably on Hitler's part some expectation 
based possibly on evidence that Britain would ally itself with him. Of course, Edward VIII, as we know now, was on friendly terms with Hitler. And at that point, you know, the monarchy was much more powerful as well. So it could have gone the other way. Anyway, um, it's been a complete delight to have you on the on the podcast. And I just love the Greeks and the, and, and, and the Romans and all the classics. If people want to find out more about what you do, your books, where can they find out more about the ancient world and about you? Do you know, I'm ashamed to say I, I, I should have a some sort of presence on social media. And I will do so subsequent now to this talk, which I've found I've relished it greatly, Philip. We've covered so many um, different areas, and you've put me on the spot in a, in, in a lot of ways, which I've found very rewarding, actually. I've done my courses with the great courses. Those, I think, are more for the general public, so to speak. I've uh, written recently two books. The third one is in press at the moment with uh, pen and sword, one on uh, Greek mythology, Gods and Heroes Speak, another on how to survive in classical Greece. I, I've become more interested recently in presenting my subject for a broader readership, but I've also felt that it's been important in my uh, career to, to do work that I thought was bringing to life the ancient world in ways that it had not been highlighted, as I mentioned about the disabled and also about refugees. My books are all available. The courses are all available. And I will put myself on social media. Ah, I created change. If people want to read some classics, what are some classics you think that most people should read or will inspire them? And they're like important to, to have read. What, what are a couple of books that you would say, read these, these classics? You mean modern books? Yeah, they can even be fiction books that you say like, hey, these are some things that I think would spark some curiosity thoughts. Well, just a couple, you know, I mean, you mentioned the Iliad and that may be a, you know, a bit of a mouthful for people. But I would, when I taught it, I always emphasized books 1, 9, 16 and 24 as the sort of the meat of the book, the whole of the Odyssey, of course. And I would read one of the it was written probably uh, half a century ago now, The World of Odysseus, which was by Moses Finley. It's a wonderful recreation of what the society that Homer was describing was, was really like. There's a book by uh, a dear friend of mine on democracy, Greek democracy by Paul Cartledge. I would strongly recommend that. I always go back to the ancient texts, really, when The English Patient came out, a film which mm. um, uh, you may remember, wonderful film starring Ralph Fiennes, Herodotus became a bestseller on bookstands at airports and elsewhere because of a story that he tells, Ralph Fiennes tells, I think, in that, in that film. I thoroughly recommend Herodotus for his wonderful storytelling. And um, I think I'll probably... Just leave it at that for the moment. Well, thanks so much for telling your story and gardening my thoughts, gardening your thoughts. I wish you all the best in all the endeavors that you do with the art that you create and the books you will write to help people think for themselves and learn from some ancient wisdom. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast, Robert. Thank you for finding me, Philip, and I wish you all the best. 
If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.